You're listening to CivCast on the Kyle Dempster Studios Network. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash CivCast. For once you have tasted flight, you will walk the earth with your eyes turned skyward, for there you have been, and there you will long to return. And speaking of returns, welcome back to CivCast. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, We had about a two-week hiatus there, which we uh, apologize for. We were on a good roll with some consecutive weeks of recording. Two weeks ago, I had a family uh, issue crop up on our recording day, and I was also a little sick. So we didn't manage to record then, and we were all ready to record last week. And then poor Voucher falls ill on the Monday. So uh, we didn't manage to get episodes in for those two weeks. We apologize, but we're back this week. Um, my name is Dan, and my co-host <laughs> is Voucher. Voucher, how are you feeling now, my friend? I can talk, I have a voice, and I'm happy to speak again. <laughs> so uh, were you sick for a while, like a couple of days? Yeah, it, it always happens when the temperature like uh, shifts rapidly. So we had like uh, 30 degrees, then 17, and then 25 again, Celsius and everything like that. Uh, I always get sick when that happens. That's brutal, man. Yeah, That's brutal. Brutal way to start the summer. It um, happens. Yeah, it does. It does. So we were talking just off air, too. I mean, I know a lot of people who are listening to this are uh, big gamers beyond just civilization. We were talking about uh, E3. E3 is going on as we're recording this right now. And um, there's nothing for Civ 6, and I don't think we're expecting anything for Civ 6. We talked about that. I mean, there's like they had Rise and Fall, and there's nothing really that they can put forward, I don't think, at a dev conference like that. Um, I'm curious if maybe we see something in the PC gaming uh, section for Age of Empires. What it would be, Age of Empires Four? Yeah, that's the one they announced. Yeah, I, w- yeah. I was hoping that at the Microsoft, uh, but it's the Xbox One, so I didn't expect. Yeah. it. but I'm still hoping, man. Yeah, for the PC gaming uh, part or whatever, because they announced that like, gosh, like a year, a year ago, ago, six months. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would be pretty hype. I'd love to see that, but. Uh, but we're here to talk about Civ with you guys. Uh, we're glad you tuned back in. You can follow us. Our main uh, method of discourse uh, is through the Reddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Civcast. We posted updates on there uh, when the episodes were not coming down the pike. So if you uh, follow us on the subreddit there, you likely saw and were soundly disappointed because we know, folks, we know this is one of the highlights of your week. <laughs> um, but we will shake it off and we'll get back into things today. We're talking about... Um, we played our report back section with America, and specifically, we were focused in on a late game uh, domination play, and we interacted with some of the late game military units. Which, um, you know, admittedly for me, I, I hadn't seen most of these. Well, maybe not most. Most is probably a bit of hyperbole. I hadn't seen a lot of these, so this is my first interaction with a few of these um, late game military units, and it was a lot of fun. Um, so we'll get into discussing that in depth, I think, right off the bat here. Then we're going to dovetail a little bit into uh, some other discussions. But, um, Vouter, how did your uh, America game go? I know that's not a sieve that you play super often, but we started in the industrial age. And, yeah, run us through how your game went. We could talk a bit about the mechanics after. Um, so it went actually uh, quite well. I achieved a victory. I, I played on a continent's map uh, again because I like to challenge myself in that way especially when i want to go domination i don't like on a continent's map but i I find it uh stimulating somehow to actually put me out of my comfort zone i had uh, um russia uh up to the north of me and france a little bit to the west there was quite a bit of like space between us and those were the only two uh, other cities on my continent. Well, I just started up building out a lot of cit- cities quickly. Um, want to spread out as wide as possible in the beginning, grab as much land as I could to establish myself. And then as soon as I researched uh, artillery, I decided to put my guns towards Russia and wipe them off the map. Um, at that <laughs> point, uh, I had a pretty good... Uh, army going already i had some artillery i had some of the rough riders the american uh, unique unit which i actually really really like um they are really good and uh we're super useful uh, actually uh in the game as well as cavalry nice. units and nice. uh, i uh, decided to uh, 
point my guns towards France. But I also kind of unlocked uh, at that point uh, flight and everything like that. And I had a city snuck up close to the border of France where I conveniently was able to place an airport. And I decided why not take advantage of this and throw myself big time into uh, the air warfare of this game. Especially because nice. at that point I also did unlock the, the special unit um, right before I declared war, the P-51 mm-hmm. Mustang as mm-hmm. the re- replacement for the fighter. And nice. of course uh, the bomber. So I decided to go in my airfield with four of those fighters and four bombers and uh, just fight France. Um, I wasn't that much impressed with the fighter. That might also be because there was little to no uh, air opposition from France, but the bombers actually did a significant amount of work. And together with, I believe, it's a new unit, the the, the spec op, uh, able to parachute uh, in to places that are deeper inside of the territory while my uh, Rough Riders and artillery were beating on the uh, the front lines. I was able to bomb like Paris uh, down to almost like nothing drop oh uh, you animal yeah i i, I the, bombed the paris of light. i bombed paris dropped in some paratroopers or the spec ops and turn later actually took paris uh, that way which was a really interesting strategy i had used before and i actually really really liked using it that way after that uh, the front line fell um the rest of uh, france uh, also fell and i was conqueror of my continent Nice. Lucky, <laughs> lucky for me, um, France had one city on the other continent as well, which had a little bit of a weird uh, layout. Um, there were three civilizations on there. It was China, um, Japan, and Germany. But uh, like for 50%, like in a straight line through the middle of the continent from one of the coasts, the coast which I came from, with my assault they had like Uh a straight line of six city states which was really weird and dividing the continent pretty much in in half with china to the south and then you had uh, japan to um the west of that line of city states and to the north you had uh, germany which was really useful for me because that way i swept in from the south built some forward uh, airstrips with a uh, military engineer uh, so that I can use my bombers uh, to take out the Chinese cities as well and just swooped in with all my army pushing through eventually towards Japan. And of course, I had to wait uh, before taking the capital of Germany because I was almost done finishing uh, my uh, thermal nuclear device in one of my cities because I right. had to put a nuke in one of the cities where since we're playing a late game. Yeah, and for so sure. I, I nuked Aachen and then uh, rolled in with one of my uh, modern uh, tanks and uh, finished it all off. God, so you started with the Cold War and then you dovetailed into this kind of, well, gosh, after the G7 meeting on the weekend, I don't know, uh, <laughs> very, after everything that happened in that, a very modern war, I guess you might say. Yeah. Yeah, um, but hey, you know that sounds like a fantastic game. Did you do what I did, which is um, I think we discussed this. Um, did you just do like modern civs? Because it sounds like you did China, France, Russia, Germany. Who else? Or did you just do those six? No, uh, it was uh, uh, Germany, yeah. Japan, China, France, and Russia. So they are all like uh, modern civs. Yeah, so I did the same thing except I did eight, and I added the Netherlands and. Um, Oh gosh, who was my eighth one that I added? Uh, Brazil, because oh. I wanted to see if maybe I ran into Brazil and saw the Minister Ias, but I didn't. Um, cool. Well, that's really that's that's fantastic. Um, I had some fun interactions with the Rough Riders myself too, and uh, I guess I mean I'll run down my game real quick. Um, I didn't get all the way to the end of it again. Uh, I actually wanted to, and I probably no real good excuse for it since we had two extra weeks to play it. Just that I kind of got my fill of it after I saw some of these um, Atomic Age units and stuff, and I got everything I wanted out of it. I played Continents as well. I ended up on a continent with the Netherlands, which I'm sorry to say did not end well for for Wilhelmina and for your people. But before we uh, we roll into that, just real quick recap. Um, if you're in the car or if you're listening to us, you don't have access to a computer or whatever. Um, America's advantages um, are, well, really, frankly, quite advantageous to this kind of game. Um, 
you have the leader bonus Roosevelt Corollary, uh, where units receive a plus five combat strength bonus on their home continent, plus one appeal to all tiles in a city with a national park, gain the Rough Rider unique unit with rifling. So obviously the plus five combat strength bonus sounded like it was beneficial to you. I know it was beneficial to me for sure. Uh, the Civ Abilities Founding Fathers government legacy bonuses accumulate in half the usual number of turns. And then, uh, actually, I think since uh, Rise and Fall that's been changed, or has it been added on to, maybe you can help, I can't remember, um, all diplomatic policy slots in the current government are converted to wildcard slots. Did that government legacy bonus thing carry over? Does that still so exist? So what they first had was that, I believe, the speed at which you gained the legacy uh, thing from your government doubled or something like that. It was That's 100% right. faster. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, since they exactly. kind of removed that from the game, they changed it into like every diplomacy slot becomes a wildcard slot. Okay. Yeah, that's that's the rise and fall one is what I noticed is that the, the yeah. extra wildcard slots I thought was really beneficial right off the bat. And we could talk a little bit about how there were a lot of weird mechanics to doing a late game start. That's not something that I do very often. And I was a little taken aback by some of the stuff that I interacted with, particularly right off the bat. Um, but yeah, you know, for me, I was on my home continent and uh, there's actually only one other Civ and it was the Netherlands. And, um, you know, I right away wanted to try and experience those industrial era, uh, units. The, the Rough Rider was, you know, a pretty outstanding unit. Um, it earns culture from kills on the capital's continent. Uh, I wasn't going for a culture victory, so that was kind of moot point for me, but I could see how that might be advantageous. It gains plus 10 combat strength with fighting on hills. And um, I didn't I, I didn't know that when I was fighting, but I was fighting in really rocky and mountainous terrain. So I know that was beneficial because I found that my uh, Rough Riders were just, you know, melting through the Dutch units like butter. Uh, there's a low maintenance cost and it requires no resources. So, um, yeah, the Rough Riders are particularly strong units. Again, um, little shout out to the aesthetics. I think they look really cool. Oh, yeah. I think their horse oh, yeah. their horses look really neat and the... Um, the whole the whole art behind it um they look, they look really neat i think you have you have different color horses i know that some of my uh, rough riders had white horses and some had brown horses and i think there are three different horse models for them so i thought that was really neat um the fact that they upgrade uh into the modern armor was something that took me aback a little bit but uh i was still eh, it's still kind of cool um so yeah yeah i um i, I sieged uh the dutch capital pretty quickly i think i want to say i was like 60 turns 60 70 turns in when i was finally comfortable enough to start building up my units i trying to remember because this was two weeks ago i know i had a lot of rough riders um what else did i have uh i'm looking through the units here i definitely had gunpowder units i just don't remember which ones i rolled out in this time i didn't have any air for this because it was still it was tail end of the industrial era um yeah so i can't really remember what else i rolled out for this attack um distinctly but it, it worked really well um and i managed to conquer the two cities that the dutch had established by that well the two big cities there's one small city as well um and then i kind of stretched to the uh the extent of my continent and i managed to get by turn 100 and about turn 130 managed to have six cities that were humming along quite well which i was quite impressed with two uh coastal cities and four inland cities i had a really good continent there was a wealth of resources in there both luxury and bonus and everything so i was i was really fortunate in that sense um so i started rolling out. i wanted to see what some of these naval units looked like so when i got into the modern era i started rolling out uh submarines and battleships as best i could and they look cool um they move around really neat and that was actually my first time building submarines i built battleships before so they were cool to see um i encountered a couple uh russian don't think they were subs if i don't remember i want they might have been like ironclads I, I don't remember exactly what they were but i count, encountered a few russian naval units and was able to engage them and that was a lot of fun um i built uh an airport and i managed to get a couple fighters and i managed to get a couple bombers and again i was humming those along and i think the mechanics as it pertains to interacting with those um is probably better in my opinion than uh, the way that i dealt with uh, aircraft in civ 5. they felt very very underwhelming in civ 5 and i feel like in civ 6 there's a little bit more um they feel a little bit more substantive and there's a little bit more going on there i guess in the air combat um and then yeah you know i, I engaged the russians and i battled with them and i saw on their continent they had taken over uh whatever was france um and uh, yeah, I didn't end up running into Brazil with the Minister Ayas. I didn't see 
uh, Japan or China or anything like that. But that's okay. For me, it was about kind of playing around with these modern units that I don't see and also playing around with some of these modern techs that I hadn't really um, seen much of in my games. And I had a lot of fun. And so I guess to uh, create a bit of a discussion out of this, let's start by talking about the air combat because you said you prioritized air combat. Um, the fighters and the bombers, which are your units in the modern era, um, I thought were really well done. I was really impressed with them. Uh, wait, sorry, the biplane is modern era. The fighters and the bombers are the era after that. Is that right? They're, they're atomic era. Yeah, they are uh, atomic era uh, already. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, because I got to the atomic era in my game, and that's when I ended it up. I didn't get to the information era. Um, what are your thoughts on air combat in general? Um, you've got you've got the air fighter squadrons, you have the air bomber class, and then you have the support class. And I know you talked to about observation balloons and upgrading those. So take any part of that question that you want to run with it. Um, so first of all, I found in my game specifically that uh, maybe it was the AI. Maybe I was just that good. I don't think so. I think it was the AI. Uh, fighters are absolutely useless. Uh, there was no anti-air there, well, I think I encountered one time something of an anti-air somewhere because I believe one of my bombers once got a little bit of damage. Um, but there was no air units in general from them. There were no fighter-to-fighter combat or anything like that. Um, so the fighters were absolutely useless. Eventually, I built a couple of uh, airplane carriers because I never built them before either. And I just wanted to see what I could do with them. Uh, and just put my uh, put my fighters over there, the the P fifty ones, and yeah. just roamed around the seas and tried to see if I could actually do something with them. Beyond mm-hmm. that, I just uh, used a lot of. I believe there was one airport that I think Japan built one airport eventually that I used uh, to stash some of my bombers in my advance towards Germany. But beyond that, uh, nobody actually built any airports. So I used a lot of the uh, airstrip uh, buildings that you can get with a military engineer. That was super useful. And the bombers were, because of that, super powerful. I could go behind enemy lines and start and destroy a lot of their uh, city defenses and everything like that. Jump in some spec ops and take cities that way. And... Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a big investment, which in this case paid off immensely. But I find it super lacking in the fact that there was absolutely zero resistance from any AI. Even Japan, the only one that actually built an airport, had zero airplanes finding me and everything like that. I believe the only anti-air that I encountered was from a ship that was on the coast of one of the cities or something like that. Um, Yeah. And that is really disappointing. With that, I mean, it made it so much easier for me to just go around. Um, but yeah, that it just makes me a little bit sad to see how the air system in this this game works at the moment. Um, I yeah. found I find it a bit underwhelming, and I, I think in multiplayer the system actually work can work really well because the yeah. more resources you do like invest in fighters to protect your bombers and counter enemy bombers, you can use less bombers yourself and therefore you have to strike the balance and it's like a guessing game and everything like that between the two players. But with the AI, you just don't have that. The AI is completely in like, incapable of putting any resistance up for that at all. And that just makes it not fun for me to play with planes at all. That's fair enough. You know, I think I was thinking about that while I was playing because Russia did have an airstrip and um, I did see a couple of Russian planes. I didn't engage them. But um, I just I guess is it a matter of the AI is not um, coded or programmed to prioritize air combat or is it just is it just that the idea of air combat doesn't work so well with a hex based military game? Because that's what I was thinking as I was playing is, you know, air combat is such a. it's such a different thing. Like it's, it's so much more chaotic. It's so much more fluid than, you know, this uh, basic infantry based or even tank based and cavalry military combat. Like it's not something I think that necessarily works for a hex based game. 
Um, now with Hearts of Iron is another game that uses air combat in a yeah. you know a modern setting. Do, obviously, that deals with it in a slightly different way, but also somewhat in somewhat the same way. And I also feel like air combat is is lacking in that. I mean, we're never going to get Ace Combat if you remember those old like Ace oh, Combat yeah, games, yeah. Places, games that I love, by the way. Um, old school dogfighting games. Um, but is there a way you think that they could um, evolve uh, air combat into something that um, actually does feel substantive because it's important, right? It's it's an important it, part yeah. of modern modern military apparatus. It was a huge part of what you would look at as being atomic era uh, warfare. And yeah, although it looks cool, and when I say I think it's better than Civ Five, I think the potential is there for it to be better, and I enjoyed my interactions with it more than the very very cookie cutter interactions I had in Civ Five with air combat. But do you think there's anything they could do to evolve it into something substantive and something that people and AI will prioritize? I have thought about this like multiple times because there must be something done. Um... You're now playing like a kind of chess game with your tanks and your infantry and everything like that. And I fully agree that the way that they lay over the air combat system is just not, it's not working because you're kind of trying to, to join into the same air, uh, the same chess game with the air units, but it doesn't really fit. And yeah, perhaps you need something like, I don't know. I don't know if you have ever played the the, the space version of uh, CF. I forgot what its name. Beyond Earth. Uh, have you ever played ne- that one? Never played. Never played Beyond Earth. No, I think they, we in, Beyond, about- in Beyond Earth they have like a second layer where you use your satellites and everything like that. And yeah. and perhaps some a system similar towards something like that could work, where you have uh, your planes in certain zones. And where they can give, uh, if you have like um, air superiority with your fighters, every uh, melee unit or uh, has plus five uh, combat strength or something similar to that. And yeah. where your bombers can do a certain amount of like uh, static damage every turn towards every u- enemy unit and city in that zone, as long as you have air superiority or something like that. Yeah. Um, the more bombers you have, the more damage you do, and perhaps yeah. some, so perhaps something like that. And you can even make it like uh, have a fighter, uh, close air support, and like strategic bombing units, where the close air support focuses on uh, infantry units and tanks and everything like that. The bomber units focus on infrastructure and cities, and the yes. fighters focus on uh, air superiority, and make that on a, like yes. a different level or something, something like that, which supports the base level. Level. Because that, if you look at World War II and everything like that, that's how it worked. The, yes. the air, the air units were there to support the ground level. They were not the main focus. And even nowadays, you have air support. They, you call in for air support and everything like that because that's what they do. They are support units. So give a kind of a system like that. Make a heart of iron system with regions, perhaps where. Um, perhaps a couple of cities together are a region because I think one city alone is a too small of a region for these kind of things. And and in that kind of way make it make it function. How Roger, about that's that? fa- no, dude, that's absolutely fantastic. You know, I was thinking about that as you were talking about it and I visualized this idea um, of layers and zones. So I, I didn't play Beyond Earth, but I watched plenty of videos of it to know kind of how it worked with the satellites. And so that was like a that was like a separate overlay. Right? It yeah. was like a separate layer. Yeah. So this this is built. If you can picture this, guys, and you visualize it, the idea I have in my mind is you have your obvious your 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 basic traditional like ground level uh, layer and overlay, and that's where like ninety percent of the game is played. But then you have some sort of, uh, probably just a simple button, quite frankly, uh, down by your minimap that you click, and it takes you to this strat, this this atmospheric or stratospheric layer where you deal with air combat. And instead of being dealt with in hexes, which I think everyone would agree doesn't really work for air combat because it's too restrictive, um, you have these bigger kind of maybe they're even bigger hexes. You can still have them be hexes, but they're just yeah. really large. And yeah, what you're saying here, you have them as like zones, you have them as, you know, you add combat bonuses as part of zones, if you have like support aircraft, or you have 
like uh, obviously most support aircraft in a war is support aircraft to some extent, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. But also you could have um, you could have your actual dog fights within these zones. So if you send one of your fighters into a zone that's occupied by, you know, a squadron of other fighters, then it, you know, you actually have space to see a dog fight happen. And so I don't think that you could evolve the actual combat element. I mean, this isn't, this isn't real time strategy, so to speak, where, you know, you're actually like pointing them or clicking them around in the hex. But when you send them in there, you could have at least, you know, something that looks a bit more substantive, but you know, you could also have that layer for your satellites. You could have that layer for your drones and the reconnaissance. Um, because I know that you have, you know, we were talking about the observation balloons. We were talking about supply convoys, drones, and the fact that the support element for aircraft is there. Um, and it looks really cool. And the idea is really cool. Um, for me, I didn't, I didn't use any, um, but I knew they were there. Um, but yeah, that's, that's just, I have this visual of this second layer, this, this stratospheric or whatever air combat uh, layer that they could add to it as like a, I don't I, like a second or a fourth dimension, not fourth dimension. What would that be? <laughs> like, like uh, I don't know. You know, I, th- I think you could kind of get what I'm saying, right? This kind it, of you go for two D chessboard to um, pretty much three D chessboard with an extra layer Thanks. on top of it. Thank you. That's the aesthetic I was going for. Do you think something like? I mean, is that sort of what you're picturing as well? Yeah, I think that the, I think something like that. And like indeed, that. what you said, uh, the hexes would still be kind of there. But mm-hmm. they just like become super large. Like, uh, yeah. you have what is one hex here would translate like one hex on the top layer would be something like 36 hexes on the bottom layer, something like that. I'm yeah. just saying a random number. Um, and in that way, indeed, you could do your thing. Um, and, and yeah, I, I don't know exactly how the combat between different nations would work in that kind of space, but mm. um, I, I think they could do something completely different to it. Um, not specifically the, the chess-like nature of moving your planes around and clicking and firing at an enemy unit or something like that. Perhaps something yeah. more, I don't know, minute uh, where they damage each other and can occupy the same space and just vie for control or something like that i'm not exactly certain also yeah. not how how you would interact with anti-air from the ground and stuff like that because that probably has to be a thing as well there, there are a lot of things that i have no clue how this system could work but i think that what we talked about is a decent basis at least yeah i think so and you know question I mean, have you ever played going all the way back even to the early strategy games? And we're both old, so we probably remember the old <laughs> Command and Conquer Red Alert games and stuff yeah. like that. Have you ever played um, a Forex game or a strategy game or even an RTS game where you've been satisfied with the air combat or where you felt that air combat has been substantive beyond one that perhaps was specifically built as an air combat strategy game? Um, there is one, but it's an RTS, and that I think that makes it completely different already. Um, it was also by uh, Paradox, and mm-hmm. I forgot the name of it. I'm I'm looking through my Steam list now if I can find it, um, because it, it was in the game. It was a real time strategy game where you had your planes kind of back in support. It's, it's the same as the kind of the. The Red Dragon kind of games. It's one of those Normandy games. Like, what's it called? Normandy. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. I think I know it's it's like called Normandy 44 or something like that. I see them advertising it on Steam sales all the time. Yeah. And it's it's the same uh, kind of game uh, that is uh, from the War Game. I don't know if you heard of it. War Game Red Dragon is an example from it. It's like. Heard of it. And what you do there is your planes are back at the base, outside of the, the, the map in combat, you can order them um, to strike at a particular target, and they mm-hmm. your, your, your units come in, fly over there, lose their bombs, fly back to uh, rearm and refuel, and mm-hmm. you can have interceptor planes to intercept enemy bombers, and your interceptor planes to intercept interceptors, etc., etc., etc. And yeah. In, in those kinds of games, I really like how the air combat is done. You are playing definitely with the ground units. Uh, that's your focus. You 
you do everything with them and your planes are there to support them. You see uh, a group of enemies that are in a fortified position or something like that or in a specific position where you cannot push through, then you just throw a lot of bombs on there, make them weaker and vulnerable, and then you throw your units in like you would do if you would actually play in a real-life combat thing as well. Um and of course that doesn't exactly work because as you said this is not a real time strategy game. Yeah. But um, something close to that I would love. Yeah, that's fair enough. You know, I and I think this might be cheating because I specifically qualified that it can't be a game where air combat is the basis, but for me the um the pinnacle of RTSs that I've played where I felt air combat was immersive was Sins of a Solar Empire, which I think uh, we've talked about. Yes. Which of course, I mean it's only air combat because it's set in space. But good lord, did I feel like the air combat and well, the, the space combat in that was just so extremely well done. And quite frankly, that's a game that I hope um, the IP gets picked up and they roll out a second one for. Because oh was, yeah, absolutely. That was probably my favorite space-based R- RTS that I've ever played. Um, okay, um, really quick, uh, if you want to talk about uh, maybe the modern naval combat, if you're satisfied with the way that uh, the uh, the sea fighting works uh, post-industrial age, because submarines and battleships, I mean, like, it, this, for me, naval combat's different from air, but it's also different from land. It does, it does feel fluid, and it does feel substantive enough for me, um, but I do feel like, or, or maybe I don't feel like, rather, there are enough uh, unique naval units. Like, the fact that there's a submarine and a battleship and that's it. And then yeah, there's I, a destroyer. There's the destroyer, but that's that's atomic okay. age as well, right? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. miss a cruiser, uh, or is that the battleship upgrade? I've got. So, so the battleship oh, yeah. upgrade into the information age is the, the missile cruiser. Then the submarine in the info age evolves into the nuclear submarine. Yeah, there's only one, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm looking at my unit tier uh, chart right now. Yeah, atomic age is only one naval air upgrade, which is a destroyer, and the destroyer doesn't upgrade again. Yeah. So there's and then there's an aircraft carrier. So to be fair, there are four classes of naval units. Um, and then if you're playing late enough and you have Brazil, you also have the Minas Gerais, which is unique. But do you think there's enough there right now for naval combat? I personally don't think you could add anything more unless you add something like naval bombers. And that's air okay. combat again. Uh, beyond that, I don't think there are... I mean, there are, of course, a lot of different classes of ships. And mm-hmm. it's That's a real. It, it, you have like, but what they did here is pretty much uh, divided into the like the the super classes, capital mm-hmm. ships, uh, screens, and submarines, and um, to make a deeper um, like differentiation between them, I don't think with the unit stats that you have here, you could make that much of a difference in there. Um, I don't think there is anything specifically in the Unistats that allows such differentiation for a light cruiser or a heavy cruiser or something like that, or a battle cruiser. Some There's just not enough. You would, yeah, the only thing that I could think of that they would be cheaper to produce, people will find out eventually exactly which one has the best bang for bucks uh, by production. And sometimes if you're in a city that has a low production, you would perhaps build a less powerful one. But beyond that, I don't think that adding more units to it in that kind of way would actually solve anything for the naval combat at all. Okay, fair enough. Um, and that was what I was talking about was, was different classes and, uh, you know, just a bit more evolution and a bit more nuance to the uh, different units because, I mean, that obviously exists in real life, but perhaps you're right. People would end up streamlining and prioritizing the one that was overpowerful and the rest of them would kind of fall by the wayside. Um, okay. So uh, one other thing we wanted to talk about as it pertains to this is the uh, mechanics for uh, what it's like to start a late game. But I did want to talk real quickly about uh, some of the responses we got in the uh, subreddit. So uh, one specifically was Tamisran, um, who shared with us um, some of their really kind of neat uh, historical facts again. Uh, and Tamisran, by the way, I think this is the third straight week that they've posted. Thank you for these posts. They're, they're fantastic. Um, so I'll quote this post directly. 
Well, I tried to, uh, my best to get a game going, but I've come to a realization. I just don't have fun without starting in the ancient era. I'd never tried it before and I assumed I wouldn't like it, but I had no idea just how much I wouldn't like it. I'm honestly kind of surprised. <laughs> That's being honest there. Yeah, yeah, I did manage to get a good Roosevelt game in though. I'm fairly certain you guys have discussed Teddy before, so I'll give you my thoughts on late game war instead because honestly, America's just sort of a boring sieve for me personally. And I mean that's that's fair i mean i don't find them to be a particularly exciting civ but they're not weak um the main issue i see with late game war in the civ 6 is that they attempt to make it feel different by adding new types of units and even an entire district focused on improving the air game but in the end it just feels like a watered down version of early combat i'm not really sure how they could fix this because they would have to completely rework how war works after industrialization as even the policy cards do almost nothing to influence the actual feeling of a late game war which again i think is what you and i have been talking about yeah. It just feels like going to war in the late game is an option you can take, but one they don't expect you to take. It's almost like the system is there because it has to be, and the devs don't really focus on it because all domination victories are supposed to happen earlier. Color me cynical, but I feel like post-industrial war is to Civ Six, but diplomacy is to Civ Five. It's there because it has to be, but nobody really notices or engages with it due to it being overly clunky and just sort of irrelevant, end quote. And then Tamas Ren does share a, a Teddy trivia about him for later um yeah so i think that echoes a lot of what we we're saying here as it pertains to the uh the late game combat just feeling in some cases kind of tacked on and um watered down might be a bit harsher than i would say because i do feel like they've tried to um create some really fun units with some real unique nuance to them and with some um, some actual evolution and tangible feel to them but I can understand what they're saying. But I did want to ask what Thomas Ren discussed at, at the start because I echo this, and I'm curious what you think. Do you just do you not like starting games anywhere but at the very beginning? Because I know for me it was it was a challenge to actually get into the game. I actually do not like to start beyond the the the, yeah. the earlier place because that's where I find most of the fun in the game actually is. And I have had plenty of games that I just didn't want to. Com- go on beyond like the industrial age itself because the beginning was where I had a lot of fun I I knew I was going in the right direction and if I just kept on playing I probably would win there was a high chance of winning but I just wanted to start over again and do it again because that's where the fun was that's where all the difficult choices I had to make and if I just kept playing it would be clicking next turn every now and then click on a building or something like that but I knew exactly what was going to happen anyway and yeah. I feel starting later in the game, there are some mechanics that I don't 100% fully understand either because I think this is like the second or third time that I started at a later point in the game. Like what? What mechanics? Um, for example, I believe your city starts with a lot more production in the beginning. The, yeah. f- the first city that I, I plopped down, I uh, my district got finished super quickly. I started with a worker, and uh, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how that works. Um, I do not like that religion is completely out of the game. I did not know yeah. that, it, that it was actually a thing. And, I didn't um, either. I find that sad because they, they really try to make religion a big part of this game. And I'm not 100% certain why they decided to completely remove it in the industrial era. And I assume later ones as well. I don't know where exactly the cutoff point is for religion being a thing in the game. Uh, the only thing I can think of is like, yeah, well, religions didn't get founded in the industrial era. But then again, civilizations like there, there is no situation where every civilization just started in the industrial area either. You're already playing a weird kind of alternate <laughs> yeah. history thingy anyway. So why yeah. not just keep religion in there? Um, it's a choice that I com- don't completely understand. I wouldn't have made myself. Yeah, that's fair. That was jarring to me as well. Um, and I just... Yeah, it was it was jarring when I started, and I could build. You know, it took one turn to build my first like five things in my capital city, and I mean that was nice. Don't get me wrong. And like I said, I was able to get six, you know, relatively strong cities quicker than I certainly would be able to from an ancient era start. Um, but Tamishan speaks to something that that sounds like you're speaking to, and that I know I I believe as well, which is just the feels not there. It just doesn't feel like I'm invested in my sieve when i play one of these kind of late game starts it was 
it, we did it specifically because we wanted to do um, <clears throat> late game military combat and check these units out and, and have a uh, discussion on them. And that makes sense, but I feel like I just wasn't really into the game. Um, and I don't think that's because I was having a bad day or anything like that. I just feel like there wasn't any flavor to it. I hadn't experienced the growth of my Civ. And I do know that in Civ 5, I played many games where I got too late game. And although I had issues with late game uh, military in Civ 5, I thought it was, to use Tamerson's word, quite watered down. Um, I did at least care about it. And when I got there, I still felt like I had you know, earned it. And I felt like it was something I was invested in. And it was something that just had... You know, it, it had relevance to it. it. It felt like it felt like something I cared about. Whereas in this, um, when you start late game, it feels like you're just immediately having to rush things. It feels like you're immediately just in a hurry, um, and it just didn't feel like something that I was really at all invested in. So I can I can completely agree with that. And the mechanics itself were weird. The religion thing threw me off. Um, the starting units that I got threw me off as well. Like yeah. I think you start with. Well, I know you start with at least two settlers. I don't think it was three. I'm pretty sure it was two. You start with like two scouts, like two military units, a builder, all these different things. And again, I know that that makes sense because you can't be starting in the industrial era and having, you know, really slow production, having a slow build, because then by the time you reach the information era, you know, that's when stuff's going to get kicking. No, stuff has to get kicking right away. I get that. But it just, it, it felt weird to me and i didn't really know what to do i guess rather than the bad it felt a bit disorganized completely i like i understand that they have the option for starting at the later eras in the game um Mm -hmm. but uh, we we both play paradox games and perhaps some of the listeners did as well um they have a game europe universalis 4 where they had Mm -hmm. later starting dates and everything like that which was historically accurate and they could put it in because it was not that much effort to put it in. But in the end, they, they just were like, we made a mistake to do this. We could do it. That didn't mean that we had to do it because it was less fun to play it that way. And uh-huh. it was not how the game was designed for. And everything that they kept designing was not meant for those later starting periods. And the same goes pretty much, I feel, for Civ. The game is not meant to be played this way. And no. everything that they designed for this game speaks to it. Uh, the feel is not there. You don't have that like connection, what you speak of, with your civilization that you normally build up throughout like the centuries and where you evolve your civilization from that one capital city into a sprawling empire. Now you just push out a couple of cities. All of a sudden you have that empire already and keep building and do whatever you feel like at that point. And it's it's just completely uninteresting to me sometimes. You feel so disconnected. You do. You do. And a lot of when you're playing a game like this, is about the feel of it. It's a lot about the investment of it. A lot of it is the personality, like your own individual personality that you imbue into your civilization. And I know that I have certain um, things that I do with virtually every Civ, no matter what type of game I'm playing. Um, and that just isn't there when you start late. So you're absolutely right that it just this isn't the type of game, I guess, that um, it works when you start in a modern era. You know, this isn't an era-specific game like a Paradox game. So, you know, us, I mean, again, we did this for a reason, and it was fun to do, and it was fun to see the units. But I feel like next time I want to see, like, late-game military units you know what, I'll just play a regular game and I'll just gut it out. I'll put it on like, you know, I'll put it on like a smaller map or, or maybe, sorry, a larger map and I'll play an extrapolated game. I'll just play something that's longer. I won't do a late game start. I think that was a one-time thing for me and I don't see myself yeah. as likely to go back to it unless maybe a scenario crops up that interests me. Yeah, what you could do is like just up the game speed, go play on, on fast or online speed yeah. and that will also be able to bring you uh, way quicker into that uh, late game uh, combat style and everything like that, but yeah, I I, I wouldn't recommend playing on a, a later start. Absolutely. Um, 
That makes me curious, though, if there's any of you guys listening here and you actually did enjoy playing on the late start, please hit us up on Reddit and tell me uh, what you actually find. Because I can imagine that there are people who actually do like this kind of like late game start. And I would like to invite them to post on Reddit and tell us what exactly they found interesting in these kind of late game start. Because I do want to understand, because I I believe there are people who, who do enjoy this and I just want to know what it is. So I might actually find that enjoyment myself as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. Um, please do share. And if you have any, like we had a couple uh, really good threads start uh, two weeks ago, and I know that we haven't had a show in two weeks. And so perhaps you guys have, you know, just been busy with other things and that's totally fine. Um, but yeah, if you have stuff to share on the subreddit, please do so. And speaking of which, I did want to ask you, Copper Cutters um, posted something about domination and loyalty that I thought was really curious. Um, so Coppercutters asks, uh, quote, I'm not a traditional domination player, but I try every now and then to switch it up. How do you go about balancing the taking of cities on a conquest suave with the hindrance of the new loyalty system? I need the cities to heal up my units, but there does not seem to be a way to keep them loyal to me. Thoughts. And then below VectorCat, um, the first thing that VectorCat puts is, well, I raise a lot of cities. I'm selective about, the, about which ones I keep. And uh, me too. Major mood right there, Vector Cat. I hear you right there. But Voucher, I'm curious uh, what your strategy with that is. Um, I pretty much like take every city that I get when on the conquest, and uh, I talked about that I, I, a couple of of uh, episodes ago in one of my strategy tips. Mm-hmm. Um, that I I just go for the bigger cities, like not necessarily the border cities in general, but just like the population-wise larger cities because they exert a lot of loyalty. And if you conquer them, they will exert that loyalty towards you. And that's how I kind of um, keep my, my, my the cities that I conquer loyal to me. Uh, because uh, when we st- first started doing these like domination uh, games, I encountered that problem myself as well. I started c- conquering cities and, oh, wait, loyalty system. Forgot that was there for a second. Mm. What also helps is don't go into uh, a conquering spree when you're in a dark age. Yeah, that's that would, <laughs> that, that, that would be a hit. Yeah, that, that's just a big thing. But beyond that, look at population numbers. Um, every pop produces uh, loyalty for your empire not only f- towards its own city but also to the outside cities that means if you conquer a large city first even though that might cost you a couple of units it will mean that you will have more time to heal your units inside the borders of that city while the weaker outlying cities are still there or what you could do is position your military in such a way that you can take a couple of cities uh, immediately so that they don't exert pressure towards each other anymore and you have more pressure towards your loyalty uh, in general. That's at least uh, how I go around with it. Yeah, that's fair enough. Or you could do a Vector Cat says, and what I generally do, which is just raise them because I find micromanaging a city that I've just conquered to be a pain in the ass. But <laughs> I whatever. personally just really love the feel of taking enemy cities and uh, keeping them. I like they're they're my little trophies that that <laughs> attest right, yeah. that attest to the war that I fought and won. And uh, I I like that feel to it, uh, because I also find it super like unrealistic that you just raise every city of an enemy that you're fighting sure. except for its capital because you literally can't. Yeah. So you yeah. can't turn can't turn every enemy city into Dresden, right? I mean, that's just ahistorical. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember this might just be my Civ. I, I remember um, Civ Five it being a complete pain in the ass to the happiness metric. Um, when you would keep conquered cities, like it was, a, uh, it took me maybe, um, maybe I wasn't doing certain things right, but it, I felt like it took a Herculean effort to once you conquered a city to make it at all happy, and it would affect your kind of overall, um, your overall happiness and your overall ability to continue doing well in the game. So maybe I was just scared off of it from that. Um, yeah, what I remember from C Five was that you just had to pop at the city first, and then once you had the cash, you just annex the city, buy a courthouse, and you're fine. I know, but the court. Yeah. I know, but the courthouse was... I haven't played Survive in a while, so... Yeah, me it's neither. Been, it's been literally years, but uh, maybe that's something we need to do for a report back one of these days. Do a specific report back Civ 5 version. That might be fun. That would be interesting. Uh, yeah. 
So uh, thank you for uh, posting that, Copper Cutters. And I know that you had a part two thoughts for the show, which is about natural wonders and how we would tier natural wonders. Perhaps we'll look into that next week um, because we're running a little bit short on time for today. Uh, for our report pack for this week, Voucher, I thought it would be fun. I was looking at tier lists um, this week, and I was looking at the sieves that are bottom tier, um, like just general kind of bottom tier, the sieves that need a little bit of love. And there's definitely some sieves there that I haven't given, um, frankly, I haven't given a lot of love to. And I know that we talk a lot about tier lists, and we talk a lot about where we'd slot these sieves and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we'll go back to, uh, we'll go back to playing, you know, start from ancient era, go back to our, our comfy, cozy, warm blanket there. And I thought that I'd float the idea because the two sieves that seem to be pretty universally um, at the bottom level of tier lists are the Khmer and uh, Mapuche. So I thought I would float out to you which of those two you feel like playing a game with this week. I actually really, really don't like Mapuche. I have played okay. a game as them before, so I would definitely yeah. go with Khmer because it has been a while since I played Khmer and I would want to give them a shot again because I okay. think they have potential. Yeah, you know, I was looking at some of the Khmer and it's like their ability, the, the Aqueduct's ability is, uh, feels a bit, I don't know, feels a bit basic. But yeah. um, I haven't played Khmer beyond like a, a quick roll, like a, a 40 or 50 turns. So I would love to try them out. I know that they're definitely religious focused and they're focused on food, which is an interesting, yeah. you know, an interesting mechanic to focus on. Um, but uh, yeah, let's, let's do Khmer. Let's not set any specific uh, victory condition. Let's go with you know, whatever you naturally roll into probably would be religion, just judging by some of their stats and some of their advantages. But you know, if you want to play a science game with them or whatever, go for it. Let's roll Khmer. Uh, let's also roll a specific kind of map. Do you want to maybe do like a, an islands map? Uh, yeah, that, that sounds interesting. Okay, I'm personally really that. interested in the, the Domray uh, unique units. So uh, that's going to be interesting on an islands map. Yeah, man, let's do that. Let's <laughs> roll with the, uh, Let's roll with an islands. There's there's two islands maps, right? There's small islands and island plates. Uh, right? I, I know the island plates, but I'm not sure if small. Like, do you have the archipelago? I think that's what you mean with the uh, small maybe, islands. Maybe that's the one. I'm, no, I feel like there is a small islands one. Hold on. Um, I should have looked this up beforehand, but <laughs> uh, let me see if. Yeah, I think I think our friends at CivWiki have specific map scripts. Yeah, they do. Uh, there's. Island plates, which is islands ranging from small to large. There's inland sea. Uh, yeah, there's archipelago. You're right. Lots of small islands and a few larger islands. Yeah, yeah that was added in rise and fall. Uh, yeah, let's do archipelago. Sure. Let's do that. That'd be fun. Let's do that. Okay, so archipelago with Khmer. That's going to be our report back for this week. And we will pop that up on the subreddit for you folks. And we encourage you to chime in. Um, for report backs, you know, the goal behind them is to explore... A sieve, it's to explore a mechanic, it's to explore a victory type, it's to explore, you know, like we did um, this past week or this past two weeks, it's to explore specific units. So if there is something you want us to do for report back, um, let us know. Uh, usually with report backs, you're, you're going to want to have to tell us what the sieve that you want us to play is and then what the specific nuance or mechanic you want us to play is. If you want us to play, like, say, um, a, a pit boss kind of early game, ancient slash classical era battle between... I mean, we've done that, but if you want it specifically to stay in that and you want us to do like a four-leaf clover map with that, or <laughs> uh, maybe you want us to do like a true start location. I know there's a lot of true start locations in this game. Oh, I yeah. haven't played any of them. Like, they got true start location East Asia and true start location Europe. That might be fun to do. Um, let us know if there's something you guys specifically want us to do for a report back, and we will definitely uh, work that out. Um, we're hopeful that there is some kind of announcement or some kind of DLC mention from Firaxis at E3 this week. I'm skeptical that there will be, but um, as always, if there's any kind of new information about a patch or an update or a new sieve or something like that, um, we will definitely bring that to you next week as the dominant part of our discussion. Um, but beyond that, we're just going to keep bringing you guys. I know our our hope is, of course, always to do it every week. And we're just going to keep uh, every week trying to bring you guys a new flavor. So um, if you have feedback, you have stuff you want us to focus on, reddit.com slash r slash civcast is a place to go. Also, civcastpodcast at gmail.com. Our friend Kyle is constantly um, updating us if anyone is sending us emails or sending any feedback via that venue. Uh, Voucher, I know that Kyle, um, he... 
what did he do? He changed the website up. Is that right? He changed the, the Civcast website if people are... Yeah, the whole Caldem Studioso website got uh, transferred to a different uh, site. So uh, yeah. but you can uh, still, uh, if you just go to Caldem Studio slash Fcast, you will still get to the same location. So don't worry, okay. you will still be able to find us. Okay, good. And there is a Discord through there that you can join. You can also add us on Steam. Um, I saw Copper Cutters. You added me this past week. I don't know if it's because you were worried that we were <laughs> we'd stop doing the show, but. Uh, you can say, hey, uh, my uh, Steam name is Haggis Hands and Bouters is Innocentia69. So feel free to add us there. And thank you again for the positive feedback that we received specifically on the subreddit. Um, you know, we do it for you guys, and I guess a little bit for ourselves. But um, we love that this has become a, a nice little hour in your uh, hour a week in your lives. And we enjoy that part. We enjoy the feedback we get. So. Uh, with that voucher, perhaps you would like to uh, give the folks your strategy session, your much loved strategy session here. Yes, and uh, I'm taking this one from the Reddit as well because uh, a couple of weeks ago now, uh, because we had a hiatus, uh, Whiteyfishk53 uh, asked me a question. Hey, Wilder, thanks for putting out a quality podcast. I would like be really interested in hearing your thoughts about using builders to harvest resources and remove varying features. What are the pros and cons? Should it be done? And if so, what factors should be considered? And uh, uh, Finances1212 also said, yeah, I'm interested too. I never know if it's better to harvest or build a lumber mill slash mine, etc. And uh, I've talked a little bit about this before, especially when we were when I was discussing uh, the Magnus uh, governor and his ability to increase that output from harvesting resources and everything like that. And the best answer to your question is there is a time and place for everything, but it doesn't necessarily need to be now. Um, it really depends. If you're going to build a district in perhaps one or two turns on that specific tile, which has forest or stone or whatever, if you can, always try to harvest it. Because it will literally just go to waste. The same goes with placing a wonder on a specific uh, uh, tile that has something on it. Um, it can be super beneficial for you to get that extra bonus in production or food or both, depending on what kind of uh, uh, tile you are harvesting at that moment. Uh, beyond that, I tend to build more um, mines in general, eventually get the opportunity to build farms on hills as well, but I usually always go for mines on hills. And unless uh, appeal is a big thing, because later in the game, old forest, as in the forest that started on the map, gives a higher appeal, I will pretty much always choose to remove the forest if I want to place something on there. And that could be a farm or a district or anything like that. The, I generally do not build lumber mills anymore. I do find them not powerful enough to actually warrant my uh, builder so use for that. And this is, of course, with the idea that you have a lot of builder charges. And I always have like one dedicated city, which has the governor to get, that gives me an extra builder charge for every build that it is built there. Uh, usually I will have the policy active that gives all my builders that I build extra charges. And, uh, I just use gold to uh, buy a builder in that specific city that I chose or construct them myself there. And I have so many builders running around that I actually have the extra actions to remove all that force and everything like that away. Um, usually, uh, if there are resources on there like stone, weed and everything like that, I keep those unless they are specific in a spot that I want to place something else. But rainforest and, and forest in, in, in general, I remove these days because the production bonus is good. I'm going to place something else that is equally valuable to me there anyway. So I hope this kind of answers, uh, what, what you guys, uh, wanted to know about removing uh, terrain re features and resources nice good stuff that's it 
that's always something that I have uh, a bit of trouble knowing what the best idea is for. So that's something that I think could be beneficial in almost any game you play because the, me- the mechanic behind it, but the, the stats behind it, it definitely, uh, definitely confusing at times. And sometimes I go with just what's most expeditious. So. Yeah, people are uh, actually also interested in what you uh, find about it. So if you have a quick moment to say what your strategy is at the moment in it f- further. I, you know, I... <laughs> I'd have to think about it. While you were giving that, I was kind of looking at my historical moments as well. So I missed some of the kind of nuance and points that you have to that. So oh, I would have to. So sorry. I was, I just, I wanted to make sure that my historical moment was good to go. So I was looking that up while you were chatting. It wasn't as though I wasn't listening to you. I was obviously listening to you. <laughs> but I don't ignore you, Vouter. It's just, I, I know, making, I know. I was, I was making sure that my historical moment was ready to go. So tell you what, next week, I'll line up my historical moment uh, a little earlier and I'll listen a little closer and I'll give you direct feedback for what your, uh, your strategy session is. I promise. Very yeah. well. Um, so yeah, for my historical moment, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, obviously, I, I, I try not to um, invoke modern politics, the modern political landscape in our discussions all that often because quite frankly, doing so is it's, it's not helpful, A, and it'll give me a headache. <laughs> um, but you know it's it's funny you know paying attention to what happened this weekend at the g7 summit and all of the um angst and all the hand-wringing um that people seem to be particularly in my country i mean in canada right now we took a bit of a knock there at that summit on the weekend and not something we're exactly used to from our generally friendly neighbors to the south and it's got us a little worried i think it's got us a little anxious but um i think there's some um pause and some consideration to history and specifically to civ 6 related history um to be considered here as it pertains to what happened over the weekend so teddy roosevelt um his uh leaderability in this game is called the roosevelt corollary and the roosevelt corollary is, is a build on the monroe doctrine and you know so the monroe doctrine was kind of a, a pragmatic approach to um the growth of america whereby under President Monroe, um, the suggestion was that European powers um, were to stay in their, you know, their hemisphere or their part of the world and to leave the, uh, the Americas to kind of self-growth and self-actualization. And um, it was a doctrine that was followed for the most part and respected for the most part by the European nations um, for much of the 19th century. And then Roosevelt kind of amended the Monroe Doctrine, so to speak. He said that he was adding on to it. But what the Roosevelt corollary was, was was a a little different. And I'm going to read you um, a quotation from Roosevelt's 1904 message to Congress in which he declares the Roosevelt corollary. This is a direct quote from him. All that this country desires is to see the neighboring country stable, orderly, and prosperous. Any country whose people conduct themselves well can count upon our hearty friendship. If a nation shows that it knows how to act with reasonable efficiency and decency in social and political matters, if it keeps order and pays its obligations, it need fear no interference from the United States. Chronic wrongdoing or an impotence which results in a general loosening of the ties of civilized society may in America as elsewhere ultimately require intervention by some civilized nation. So two things to speak of real quick on the Roosevelt Corollary. One is you could, you could absolutely see how the Roosevelt Corollary was the birth of 20th century American imperialism. That stretches out with the Truman Doctrine, um, which was all about containment of communism, which was more of like American imperialist aggression in certain parts of the world. But the Roosevelt Corollary was the first time where America stepped onto the stage and said, look, we're going to actually police what's happening in the world, specifically our hemisphere, because we're not quite at the, at the point where we can police what's happening in Europe. And why would we want to? Um, but this is when you start seeing them like get really concerned, I guess you could say, with some of these kind of tin pot dictators that you saw grow over the next 20 to 30 years in places like Cuba and Nicaragua and countries like that. Now, it's interesting because the Roosevelt Corollary kind of um, before World War I and II dipped and, and the country went back into a sort of protectionism um, with the good neighbor policy. But um, it, the idea of America intervening specifically in Central and South America was really born um, with Roosevelt's 1904 message to Congress. And because the 20th century is very much a century of American, not hegemony or dominance, those would be the wrong words, but certainly American imperialism is a fair thing to say. Um, you could really see the birth of it in the Roosevelt Corollary. But the second part I wanted to s- just just to just to focus on a little bit and just to point out there is 
is the part where he talks about if a nation knows how to act with reasonable efficiency and decency in social and political matters. Um, and the word to really focus on there, I think, is decency. Because I think that it's fair to say that decency in the modern political climate is perhaps the one thing that is, um, shall we just say, lacking. And obviously, there's, there's something to be said for political expediency, there's something to be said with political survival, and there's something to be said for ensuring that your nation gets good deals. But the word decency is, is a word that's kind of always, we look to our, we look to our leaders and to our politicians for decency. People like Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt was a bellicose, belligerent guy, personally. I mean, if you know his history and you read some of the fantastic biographies on him out there, he wasn't what you would call a decent guy himself, personally. Um, and some of his actions while he was, you know, whether it was with the Rough Riders um, in the Spanish-American War, you know, he wasn't a nice <laughs> guy. But as a leader and as a president, he was a decent man. And I think that, you know, decency in our leaders should be, uh, should be something that we look for as you know, a basic qualification and par for the course here. So let's make sure that we, as best we can as individuals, are looking to conduct our political discourse with decency. Because I find, and this might be me waxing lyrical a bit, but I'm feeling, I'm feeling like I need to a little bit here. I'm finding that the political discourse that I see on places like Reddit and Twitter we're, we're losing decency there, folks. So let, let's bring it back. No matter, of, no matter of pre-programmed Twitter bots can take away our ability to have constructive and decent conversation about our politics. So let's think about Roosevelt and, frankly, every other president or prime minister or leader from most of the Western powers that have succeeded him when we think about how to talk about and interact with our politics. Well said. Well said. Thank you, sir. Thank you. So <laughs> with that little uh, totally non-political aside, um, you know, being stated now with me being allowed to get that off my chest. Thank you for turn tuning in this week, guys. Again, sorry about the uh, two week absence there. We promise that we will try, as always, to get you um, an episode every week. Uh, we record on Mondays and generally the episodes are rolled out on Thursdays or Fridays. So I will be sure to pop into the subreddit today and just let people know that an episode's on the way. So, of course, by the time you get this, you'll know that an episode's on the way. <laughs> but fear not, folks. Uh, we are back with you every week as best we can, and we will let you know on those weeks that we can't. As always, we encourage you to give us feedback, positive, constructive, or otherwise, as long as it's decent feedback. Um, and we will try and evolve the show to fit your needs, to fit your wants. Um, and yeah, with all these things considered in our crazy world, it's best perhaps to remember what one of the great American thinkers of all time, Benjamin Franklin, said. There are three things extremely hard. Steel, a diamond, and to know oneself. <laughs>